When I gave my heart to Christ, he asked me for my adjectives. These silly little letters that when strung together somehow become the life I live. So I divvied them up. Here, God, you can take the N-word and I'll keep African-American. I also kept carnivore and gave him vegetarian. So there you go, God. Those are all the labels and descriptors that I don't really need. And as I walked away, I heard him say, deceived. God without a blink says, coolly as can be, what about ugly? and jilted, untalented, stupid. Well, what do you want, God, a confession? I say, fine, I confess. I'm in hand-to-hand combat with half-witted comments that threaten my sanity at each waking moment that most of the actions that I so regret were born out of someone else's words my soul can't forget. Furthermore, since you rummaging around in my heart, I'm not sure where they stop and I start. But if you take them from me, I might might fall apart. So no, no, it would be better if they stayed with me where I can keep them hidden under lock and key. These words are weeds, God says. And they're small now, but they grow stronger every day. Crystal, I can uproot them plant something beautiful. They are not your DNA. But I passed on the offer. If I'm going to tell the truth, when God asks you for your adjectives, what are you going to do? So we're beginning today our series called Words. We're going to be talking about today the power of our words. And I asked Crystal to come up with a spoken word for words, and that's what she came up with. Great job. Can we give her another hand? Great job. So the next, the next four weeks in March, talking about words today, the power of your words. Next week, we're going to talk about bad words. And the following week, we're going to talk about Offensive words, that'll be fun. Um, And then week four, my wife is going to bring in a message on encouraging words. It's going to be a great month, and I think it's going to hopefully really mark our church. And that's why we create a series the way that we do, is because not just to kind of have something to fill the calendar or just kind of know where we're going, but ultimately, what do we want to see out of ourselves, out of our people, and ultimately, what we want to project to the world and a culture. That's what the church is called to do, be salt and light in the world, and it's powerful what our words are capable of doing. So we're going to explore that today and thinking about the power of, the, of your words. I, I want you to think about this question. Have, have you ever in your life dismissed something as insignificant only to find out later it was quite significant? It actually changed something in your life. Has that ever happened to you? I want to give you an example of this. Um, Ignaz Simmelweis might have butchered that for some of you doctors here, but learned about him and studied him, but learned about him in grade school. Ignaz Simmelweis was a German-Hungarian physician who was actually over a clinic that had two different divisions. And this, this clinic uh, had 
maternity wards and women would come in and, and give birth to children. But in one division were midwives and another division were students and the doctors training up the students. And he noticed something between the two divisions. The, the division that was giving birth uh, to, to babies, the women there that were a part of the students and the doctors were actually dying from a fever called childbed fever. They were contracting this and dying from it at a rate of two to three times the amount that the division of the clinic that had the midwives in it. And he noticed this and he's trying to figure out why. So he's walking the floor of, of both separate areas and trying to see what is happening that is causing this death rate to two to three times the amount. What is happening? What, what is the significance of this turn of events? And so he looked at a couple of different things. He found out, okay, the midwives are having the women um, give birth to the children while they were on their side, whereas the doctors were doing it and the students were doing it on their back. And so he kind of protocol, okay, let's do everybody on their side. And that didn't change anything. It was still dramatically different, and women were still dying of this disease. And so um, he, he found out that in the doctor's area and their, their ward that there was a priest that would ring a bell every time someone died. And so he's like, well, maybe it's the fear that's causing that and the women are dying. So he got rid of the priest that would go by and ring a bell. Wouldn't that be horrible? And then, and then finally, he noticed something that was happening and he noticed that the students would do an autopsy on the dead body that contracted the disease and then go right into the labor room to help the women give birth without cleaning themselves at all. And see, now, for us, that's disgusting. Now, some of you want to shake someone's hand without some hand sanitizer. Like, hold on, man, hold on, hold on. All right, all right, hold on, hold on, hold on, right? But back then, like, there wasn't this understanding of germs Right? Louis Pasteur hadn't even understood that or came out with that theory until like 1879. This was eight, the 1840s when this happened. So they, had, they didn't really have this cleanliness and this sanitization. They didn't have that. And so they didn't realize what was happening, but they were carrying that disease from one place to another. And so he, he decided, he said, okay, well, here's some chlorine, and we're going to make sure they wash up because maybe, just maybe, this is affecting it. And it was that, what they thought was insignificant, that changed the very culture of the whole hospital started changing the culture of all of the physicians and hospitals. And he kind of began some of that before they even knew what was going on. And that is a great example of something that might seem insignificant, but it changes lives and changes everything about that individual's life and a whole movement of procedures. The tongue is the same way as we're going to look at in the scripture. In fact, the scripture says this in Proverbs 18.21, that death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruits. Now, oftentimes, we, maybe you've heard this before, or you've, you've maybe read the Proverbs, or you've heard, okay, yeah, the, 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 our words are really powerful. And, and we see this in our culture, but how much do we really give the weight and the gravity of something as insignificant as a word? I mean, the average person average person will say about 16,000 words a day. That's like, that's like a book of 60 pages per day, the average person. Some of you way more, and you know who you are. And it's not necessarily gender specific. I've met some guys that can talk, man. 
But let me say this. With all the words that we say, you know, I've got 16,000 of them. Maybe two or three of them were not nice or bad. Or, but that maybe little bit of insignificance actually caused a world of hurt. I've heard it said that words create worlds. And I think it's absolutely true. Not just in the sense of, of course, in Genesis 1, God created the whole earth through his words. The Bible says the word of his power that went forth. I mean, how amazing is that? He just says it, and it's done. That's why God cannot lie, because if he says it, it's going to happen. God says the sky is red. Guess what? It turns red because he's true. He's God. And his word is truth. And it's powerful. But we, made in the image of God, have the same power, maybe not in the physical realm as much in the exact same way because, yes, he is God and we are not, absolutely. But for us, it's, it is powerful what our words do to bring blessing or cursing life or death, healing or killing somebody. And we know this because you know this in your heart as you have things that have reverberated in your mind and in your spirit of something that someone said when you were a child. Something that someone said at work this week that you can't get over because you keep hearing it echoing in the chambers of your heart and mind. Because see, all of us in our cerebral cortex have a time machine. We have a time machine in here. And it constantly goes back and just echoes the thoughts and the things and the images and the things we've heard from the past. And yet, oftentimes, we consider those few words insignificant when we say them or speak them or they're no big deal, but it's absolutely significant in our culture and our world today. I think it's significant for the church as a whole, but much less our church because the church is not necessarily known for its words laced with grace. And, and the power that comes behind our words are not in our culture Usually these words that are bringing great healing, but oftentimes can bring divisiveness. Now, that's not everybody. That's not all the church. But for the most part, I don't think the church of God is known for its powerful life-giving words. You know why? I think I'm reading a book now that G recommended to me called Extreme Ownership by these two Navy SEAL uh, commanders, I guess, Amazing, amazing book, and, and they talk about in war, when you fight one another, they call it a blue on blue. And, and he talks about being in urban combat like in Iraq, and he actually had an instance of this where in urban combat this is, can potentially happen, but it's the worst thing that can happen. It's the worst thing that could be recorded on your record to find out that you injured or killed someone from your own team. But it can happen in combat with miscommunication, with, with wrong things being done. And he says it's one of the worst things that can happen, and yet I look at that and I see the church does that constantly. We are some of the worst that shoot and kill our wounded Instead of come to heal and provide help and coaching and training. And that should not be. This is why not only for the culture in the world that is looking in on the inside of the fishbowl of the church 
or when they do to, to see the kind of church that Jesus paid for and died for that reflects his very character, not only for the world, but for us to have a culture as a church where we're looking to bring health and, and help you and encourage you and bless you and see you go from where you are to where you should be, not stay where you are. I mean, Paul himself said the goal is not, listen, the goal is not just to be redeemed, be saved, go to heaven and act the same way. He said, God forbid that even happen. We should be growing and going. But how do we do that if we kick people while they're down and hurt them and we use our words to tear them down? James has some powerful things to say about this. And I want to read and look at the scripture in James chapter 3, verse 1 through 12. James starts, if you don't know anything about James, he's the little brother of Jesus. Think about that as we read. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers. For you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. This is the power of words. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also, though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. The tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth into the same opening, both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. The little brother of Jesus, imagine growing up under that shadow. How many of you guys have siblings? There's this commercial on TV that I hate. Because it talks about, it's a, I think it's like a child, it's like an investment commercial. And it says, talks about his brother-in-law or his brother or sister. There's several different commercials. And it says, I like him. He's really good. I would like him better. If I made more money than him, and then it talks about learning how to invest. And I watch that and I go, oh my gosh, what a mirror of our culture though. I would like him better if I was better than him financially, of course. But what an interesting perspective and, and the words that we carry come from thoughts that are within our heart. So many of us say, you know what? I have a good heart. My heart is good. Don't you understand my my intentions and my words? They're good. Will you believe me? Will you believe me? And yet, if you've ever felt that way or tried to justify yourself from your words and things that you said or acted upon, I have a good heart. How do we really know our heart? 
Jesus comes in and says, let me give you two ways you can know your heart. I'll help you learn how to see your heart and how to hear your heart. Because here's the deal. You can deceive yourself into thinking, I've got a good heart. The bad thing about deception is, and Crystal mentioned it, you don't know you're deceived. It's the worst part. Nothing worse than self-deception. We've all seen it. American Idol is coming back. God bless it. Those people that get up and try to sing and you're going, oh, Lord. Your mama hated you, actually. Or she was deaf. Like something was wrong. Somebody needs to speak the truth in love to you. We've all seen that. We've all felt that. But I have a good heart. We've had that rhetoric or we felt that. Jesus says, here, I'll show you how to, how, to, how to know someone's heart. And he says this. First of all, you can see someone's heart by looking at their budget and finances. This is true. And this hurts. I don't care who you are. He says, where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. Ooh, I've got a good heart. Well, let me see your finances. Mm, you're pretty selfish. And that hurts all of us. So what are we doing there? That's how you can really judge your heart and not be deceived. That's how we see. How do we hear our heart? Well, here's what he says. He says, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Ooh. That's the other one that hurts a little bit probably. I don't know about you. But out of what is overflowing within you, you're going to hear your heart. So, for instance, I, I love, I like, you know, when, when, I'm, when I have days off or I have some time, I like watching um, sports shows. I know Randy over here, he loves, uh, I forget what's your show. What's your, Wilbur, Wilburn, whatever. Yeah, yeah, uh, PTI, PTI. He loves PTI. I like First Take. I like me some Stephen A. and Max Kellerman or whatever his name is, right? It's amazing about these guys, though, because if, if I'm home and watching sports, I'll watch through the program, and I, I'm listening. I like, I like Houston. I live here in Houston, so I'm recognized. Those of you that don't, God bless you, and we'll talk about words later. But, like, if I hear the Rockets or the Texans, okay, we've got potential. Like, I love hearing them talk about some of these kind of things because there's kind of some own, some effort. You're like, oh, okay. And you're hearing them talking about some of these different things. But if you finish, like, one of them, and then the next episode comes on, they talk about the same thing in just a different way. And LeBron, what did he say today? What's LeBron up to? Where is he? And then the next program comes on, and they talk about the same thing. And it all ends with da-da-da, da-da-da, right? And so you're, you, you enjoy it. And I'm not saying these things are bad, so I'm not preaching against watching these things necessarily. But what's interesting is I talk to people, and I'll talk to Christians, I'll talk to members of our church, and if you just sit down and talk to people for so long, you will start to hear the overflow of what comes out of their heart. And it's interesting to me that people say, Jesus is my life and the center of my life, and he's Lord of my heart, and yet I never hear you talk about that from your overflow. I don't hear you talking about the scripture and what God is sharing with you and telling you and leading and teaching you. Because some people go, well, that's weird. We'll leave like, the, like Bible debates and stuff to those theologians. But man, you start getting on your soapbox on politics and my gosh, we can't shut you up. What's in your heart? We're seeing it. We're hearing it. 
and yet what we proclaim is not the same. Now, as we go through this series, I'm probably going to offend you. I'm just going to say that in advance. My goal is not, but in the world today, if you say anything that someone doesn't like, you're going to get offended. Here's what I like to say. If you can be offended, you will be offended. So be unoffendable. Be unoffendable. Because, see, what's in my heart, if you speak to that thing, I'm going to get offended. If you don't say it in the way I like or in the manner in which I love. Because our words are powerful. Now, here's the deal, though. There's going to be things that, that might be said that you might be frustrated with or that, that might offend you, probably. The goal is not to do that. And we're not going to go off on politics. We don't, we're not a political church because there's great Democrats that love Jesus. There's great people that are independent. There's great Republicans that love Jesus in this church, and I love it. It's awesome. That it's not who ultimately and what ultimately defines you. It shouldn't be. And that should be clear because Jesus is what defines me as a person first more than anything else. But then the rest of it is a part of my identity, and we validate that. But see, if that's all of you, then you're going to get frustrated. You might get offended. But that's not the goal. The goal is to talk about how powerful our words are. But that's not to just shut us up because some of us need to, by the power and wisdom of the Holy Spirit, learn to shut up because you like to talk a lot and you're saying things that are hurting more than healing. And some of us don't talk enough. And you think, well, I'm really good with my words, but you are a coward. And this should get us to a place as a people, especially as Christians, so dependent on the Holy Spirit because I need wisdom on when to say it, what to say it, how to say it. And Christ gives me my why. Christ gives me my motive. But sometimes you need to say it, sometimes you don't. Sometimes you need to say a lot, sometimes you need to say a little. I don't know, but that should lead us to say, Holy Spirit, I need you, guide me, help me, because I can't tame this tongue. James says this greatly. One thing I don't want you to hear is the words are so powerful, and so you, and we're going to say today you need to be blessing and, and believing in people. And the Bible says love believes the most and believes the best in people. That's what love does. And that's a decision, not a feeling. It decides I'm going to look at you and I'm going to believe the best in you. That's what love does. It also says it's the glory of God to, to forgive a matter. Oh, so we need to be those kind of people, but we also need to be people that aren't afraid to speak up in the right way, in the right time, in the right manner. And this is the difference between a critic and a coach. Which one are you? In your heart, in your life, in your mind, in your mouth, are you a critic or are you a coach? Now, a critic, like a, here's a picture of Simon Cowell, versus a coach, like Vince Lombardi, one of the greatest coaches of all time. A critic does this, will publicly rebuke in order to crush you. Whereas a coach, they will say the exact same thing, just in a different way, and ultimately with a different motive. Critic's job is to let everybody know so that you can be crushed. A coach's job is to privately rebuke you in order to help you. Now, I, I say, I've said this before. But I think it's worth noting, and I, I truly believe this in my heart, 
that rebuke, the word rebuke literally means to stop or arrest. Like, hey, the, the highway's out. Don't go that way, right? A person that rebukes without relationship, it tends to lead to rebellion. You ever had somebody that's trying to tell you what to do? They don't know you, right? And that can be frustrating. Now, hopefully, you are the type of person that can receive because you're teachable, but not everybody can do that. And depending on the person, it's hard because there's no relationship. The best way is rebuke with relationship. It's righteousness. It's helpful because I know you love me. But see, somebody who's just critical and a critic, that's not their motive. They want to tear you down. The next thing, a critic waits until you are vulnerable while a coach waits until you're teachable. See, timing, saying the exact same thing, but in the right time. When As soon as I see you, I'm caught in the act, man, you're vulnerable. I'm going to let you know about it and let everybody know, whereas the coach says, okay, they're not quite ready. They're not quite ready. There's times I've had this where I felt like, man, I need to say something to somebody, but they're not going to be able to receive it. The Bible says don't cast your pearls before swine. They'll just trample on it. What that means is the things you're trying to teach and make sure they're not at a place to just run it over and they're not going to listen to you because you have great things to say and you want to help people. But it's going to hurt them if you say it at the wrong time. The next thing, a critic wants others to join in on the critique while a coach wants to protect you from criticism in order to help you grow. There's a difference between somebody who's just out there ready, right? They're the bloggers. They're the YouTube commenters. Don't look at too much of that, right? Oh, my gosh. And it's so easy and cowardly. Sinned. I don't see you. I don't know you. I have no context or perspective. I'm self-righteous. Here you go. It's amazing how quick we are to do that. And yet... That is easy. That's a critic. And I want other people to join me so I can create this buzz in order to tear you down where as a coach comes in and says, I'm going to protect you for that. So don't listen to those people. They don't know what they're talking about. They don't don't know you. But listen to me. Jesus would say it this way. My people don't listen to the thief, to the enemy. They hear my voice. My sheep hear my voice. So it's not that you shouldn't listen to all the critics, because if everybody's saying that you don't have a coach in your life, you don't have anybody else. But I hope you have a coach, and I hope you're going to be a coach. I say, ultimately, a critic, it's easy, because it doesn't require a relationship or even really loving or knowing anybody. Coaching is hard. Discipling is hard, because you have to know them and get to know them and love them. But how many of you guys know somebody that has tried to critique you, but they don't know you, they don't love you. And again, you're just going, okay. But here's the problem. Those words are still powerful. And they reverberate and like weeds grow in our heart. And we might dismiss them. I don't really care. But if you don't have anything, any other words, anything else combating that word, it will choke out your very life. It is poison, as James says. Let's, let's look at the scripture again. He says this. He gives these Three examples of how powerful this small thing your tongue is. And he gives these three examples. He says this. First of all, look at, number one, a horse. It could be bridled. It could be moved. And we talked about this last week. 
It can be moved just by a simple bit in the mouth, this large animal. We could tame it, but it can be moved. But he says this, your words are so powerful that they adjust and change everything about your life. I've heard people say, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. The Bible reality is sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will poison my soul. Because they do. The echo chamber of your life. It's constantly in these words. And James is trying to say, look how powerful this is. Just, just a, little, a little bit can move a 1,200-pound horse in the direction you want it to go. The whole body, it changes everything. And then he moves on to the next example, and he says, a ship, a gigantic ship, although moved by wind but ultimately guided by a rudder. This is how powerful this one little thing is to guide your whole life. And then his last one was a spark could flame and create a whole forest fire. And this is where he gets really intense. This fire, he says, is lit by hell. And I think this is the picture he's getting at is a person who is looking to tear someone down and bring them down is literally going to hell, scooping up fire and throwing it on them. It's like the example of the woman caught in adultery, the men picking up rocks and ready to kill her for what she's done. And Jesus says to them, hey, if any of you have sinned, go ahead and throw that first stone. Because here's the deal. In all of our lives, no matter who you are, whether you're a teacher, whether you're a helper, whether you're just a listener, wherever you are, there's always a pile of rocks ready. Always. We live in a quarry. And you're just walking around. Oh, that guy said, what? (laughs) And yet, and yet, he says, it's not only just a rock, it is the very fire from hell that poisons our heart. But if sin is that powerful, the Bible says grace is much more powerful, light more powerful than darkness. What can words of encouragement and blessing? I can venture to say there's no one in here that your tank of encouragement is filled. You're like, no, no more. No, stop. Stop, right? (laughs) No one in here. But I guarantee you're beat down on words that have brought you down. And I guarantee it's easier to echo that in your heart and then echo that out of your mouth. And it guides your very life. And you're wondering, why do I struggle with this all the time? It's because you're hearing the wrong words. Ultimately, James says this. This is is powerful and kind of scary. Verse 9. He says, with these words, with it, we bless our Lord and Father. And with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. Now, if, if this was an inspirational speech, which our sermons here are not, let, let me say this. Not that we don't want to inspire you. We want you to be inspired. But my goal is not inspiration. My goal is worship because that's transformational. You can get inspired anywhere, but you're going to feel good for a moment and leave. Worship is forever. And if I can lead you to worship and God and praise him, this is what James says. Look what he says. He, listen to what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, listen, listen. With our words, we bless people and we curse people. He doesn't say that. This is powerful. 
He says, with our words, we bless God and curse people. Then he goes into talking about how these are two different things and you can't do them at the same time. Because he gave us one key earlier, and this is what he said. The tongue cannot be tamed. Are you inspired? You cannot tame it. You're stuck. Because if you could, you would be perfect. And ain't no perfect people in here. Including that sentence, grammatically. (laughs) Nobody's perfect. And yet, he says this, it's not that you use your tongue and you, some people, you bless some people, you curse some people, but he says there's two different streams and you're praising God with one, but then with some other way you're cursing people. In essence saying this, the way to tame the tongue comes out of your words being glorifying God and praising God and the more you focus on him, the more you are actually learning to tame your tongue because here's the deal. The things that you say and count and worship towards him, now all of a sudden he changes the way I view you. And my tongue is becoming tamed by his spirit because my life, my heart is changed. Look at what you've done for me, knowing me and my sin and that I cannot tame myself. You still chose to love me. How can I not give that same love and praise and expectation to someone else, no matter what they've done? He says you can't praise God and curse your brother at the same time because he was made in the image of God. Let me give you one of them. I'll close with this. An amazing book I'm reading. It's called Ghost Boy. Anybody heard of Ghost Boy? Unless you're in the first service, don't raise your hand. Ghost Boy was a, is a book written by Martin Pistorius who contracted a disease at the age of 12 where he literally could not move. He was in a vegetable state. Let me give you the premise of the book, and it's up here. It says this. This is him talking. Imagine being unable to say, I'm hungry, I'm in pain. Thank you or I love you. Losing your ability to communicate, being trapped inside your body, surrounded by people yet utterly alone. For 13 long years, that was Martin Pistorius' reality. After contracting a brain infection at the age of 12, Pistorius lost his ability to control his movements and to speak and eventually failed every test for mental awareness. He had become a ghost. But then a strange thing started to happen. His mind began to knit began to knit itself back together. In this moving talk, Pistorius tells how he freed himself from a life locked inside his own body. In this book, Martin tells of his experience that at first he doesn't really remember anything. He starts losing all consciousness and he says he was like a creature swimming in a black sea. But at at about the age of 16, when the doctor said he's probably going to die because they think he was just getting worse and worse and worse. It's a fantastic book. He says at about 16, he actually starts coming out. And he said it was like he was waking from a dream. And slowly, over the next about three years, till he was fully awake. But he remembers things happening, although he couldn't communicate or use his body at all. No way to communicate. So he remembers his dad washing him and taking care of him and feeding him. And he's trying, he's on the inside, trying to will his arm to move and to say, hey, I'm here, dad, I'm here. 
And he said he would just get a little bitty nudge. And his dad, after a good four years of taking care of him and just assuming there's no one in there, we're just keeping him alive until he can, that he just stopped trying to see and believe that he could come back. And yet he's trapped in this body going, I'm here, I'm here. He says in this book that he gets to a point to where he just stopped trying and gave up, stopped trying to have eye contact with anybody because he said people would stop treating him as a person but just as an object, as like a, 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 a pot of a, 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 a flower or a plant in your house that you just water and move on. And he said people in the, in the clinic would, would have their flatulence going crazy and they would just talk and gossip. And he heard all of these things. In fact, one time he heard his mother after years of this, you can imagine the term, turmoil of the mother and the father. And at one point he hears her tell him, I wish you would die. And he says it broke his heart. She didn't know he was in there. She had no idea the effect of her words. But she said in a moment of emotion and frustration because she's thinking of her other children that she can't give as much attention to. And she's like, I just wish she would die. And he remembers this and knows this and recalls this and it reverberates in him. After years, he does forgive her because he sees that she's trying. But here's what happened. He gave up on himself because he was given up on people stopped looking at him and talking to him they started looking through him and he gave up even trying to give that little nudge from his neck or his elbow to say I'm here I'm a person I'm aware and I'm growing on the inside of my intellect he gave up until one day as he would go to this clinic during the day while his family was at work there was a new worker who came in and she started treating him and talking to him and looking him in the eyes. She started talking to him like he's a real person, helping him with his physical therapy. And he had this glimmer of hope and he's like, maybe I'll try again. And he does. And she starts noticing him when no one else has noticed him for years. She starts believing in him. And she looks at him. She finally tells the other staff, I think Martin... He's alive on the inside. I think I kn he knows what's going on. And it's a fascinating tale because they end up taking him and he gets tested and he's able just with his eyes to like pass these tests and they start realizing he's growing and getting better. Whereas today, look at this picture. This is, show the first picture. This is the picture of Martin as a teenager. Look at this picture. Next picture. This is him married today, 2009 because he slowly started to be able to communicate to where his muscles were working, where he could type now. He gave a TED Talk, I think back in 2015, talking about being this ghost boy. I think it's so powerful that it took one person to go, I'm not gonna box you into a category that everybody boxes people in. You know those people. That person there, they're just always angry. That person, they're just addicted to things. That's just how they are. And we help imprison people with our words by saying, that's who you are. And they stop believing they could come out of it too. And yet this one woman saw him and looked at him and said, there's something more to him and it gave him hope. 
Let me tell you this. The, tame, the, the tongue cannot be tamed. There's only one person that spoke perfectly, that never sinned, that never had to go to his disciples and say, man, I just had a bad day, my bad. There's only one person who was perfect. Only one. And that person has every right to pick up stones and throw them at us. And yet he chose to not only drop them, but say, throw them at me. Unleash to me. No one's been more criticized than Jesus ever in the history of this world. And yet taken it. No one in your life has had the power or the will to look at you and say, you're not just that angry person stuck inside your body. I see more in you. I see greatness in you. I see someone who could be a new creature. That's what our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, did for us. And then he gives us the mandate to do that for others. And if you don't, you're not reacting off of what he's done for you. You're reacting off of what other people are throwing at you. We have to learn to drop our rocks. And the only way to really learn to tame the tongue is to learn to worship with it to our God who took the fire of hell and the rocks that we deserved and gave us a new life. Will you stand with me and we pray? take this time and we're going to do something different in our church. We will have our one-to-one team come, have opportunity to pray and respond to the Lord or have the worship team come and worship. But we also are having in our service now, we've got a table here, a table back here for communion. We're not going to do it all together every Sunday necessarily, but we're making an opportunity. You can go and take it really anytime in the service. As Jesus says, as often as you gather, Think about me. Remember me. And that's what we're here to do. We're here to worship and praise him and look to a God who, when his words get in our heart, change the very fabric of our words. And we do that through communion, through praise, through worship, and then through looking at people in the image of God and offering them the, the same good news and same spirit. So I'm going to encourage you as we're worshiping here. You just get out of your seat. You can grab it. You can take it. Just take it yourself. Anywhere, anytime. We encourage you to take communion. I want to close in prayer as we worship. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, God. Lord, that your actions and your words speak loud. It's not even just your actions or just your words but it's both. We ask for those words to reverberate in our heart. And if you're in here and you don't hear a God that says, I love you, a God that says, I want you, and I have a relationship with you, if you don't hear that louder than anything else, you might not know God. And Jesus came so that you can believe and have a relationship with him. And that's what we want. 
because that will change the very course of your whole life and change the very fabric of your words. Father, open our heart as we worship and as we pray. In Jesus' name.